0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: I consider that I'm responsible for a whole new school of retention. <laughs> that is great. I would say, That is a good, great, see, really, and I'm quite serious about it. The only thing that seems to shock a million is
2: something that's
3: pretentious. Los Angeles, 1975. David Bowie arrives from the East Coast months after the soul-influenced singles Fame and Young Americans exploded on the radio, becoming the two biggest hits of his career. By that point, Bowie had become rock's greatest chameleon, starting with the glittery Ziggy Stardust three years earlier. He morphed in and out of characters as casually as he changed clothes. Now, he had come to Los Angeles ready to shed his skin yet again and invent a whole new persona. The thin white duke would be Bowie's darkest character yet, a cold yet theatrical cabaret singer, based on an extraterrestrial he had played in the film The Man Who Fell to Earth. And as the duke, Bowie made the art rock odyssey Station to Station. The result was perhaps Bowie's greatest album. But as Cameron Crowe, who interviewed Bowie at the time for Rolling Stone, remembers, it might have also brought him to the brink of madness.
0: It's one huge performance. And it is him creating the Thin White Duke character. And in the end, the Thin White Duke character began to eat him alive. One, two, three, four, five, down, baby.
3: I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon Original Podcast, where we dig into 10 albums off our new list. In this episode, David Bowie's Station to Station.
2: That's BlueNile.com.
3: The making of Station to Station is a story of genius and reinvention, topped with an avalanche of white powder and a sprinkle of black magic. Here's Rolling Stone Associate Editor Angie Martosio with the full story. In
5: 1975, Cameron Crowe was living a teenage journalist's dream. Interviewing Fleetwood Mac the Allman Brothers Band, and Led Zeppelin. But there's one interview he never thought he'd get, his white whale, David Bowie.
0: It's still kind of a miracle that the interview happened. Basically, it came from loving Deep Purple. I loved writing about Deep Purple. Nobody at Rolling Stone wanted to write about Deep Purple. Glenn Hughes was this amazing singer. We really hit it off. And then I also was writing about Ron Wood, who was friends with Glenn Hughes. And in the middle of all this, while interviewing Ron Wood, David Bowie walked into his hotel room. Ron Wood introduced me to him, not knowing that David Bowie did no interviews and was kept completely away from reporters. They had their interaction and because they're buddies. I kind of was watching it from three feet away and going, boy, no writer has gotten this close to Bowie in a long time. Bowie leaves and and Ron Wood goes, So that was great. You should interview Bowie sometime. I'd love to interview Bowie. He goes, I'll put it together.
5: Following one of Bowie's shows at the Universal Amphitheater in September, 1974, Wood took Crow to an after party at the Beverly Wilshire where he bonded with Bowie over the spinners.
0: Bowie said to me, essentially, you seem like a good guy. I'm going back to New York. Give me your phone number. I'll give you a call and we'll do an interview. I was 19 or 18, I think. Just was ecstatic that I'd even gotten that far. Never expected to hear from him. He was the most elusive, non-existent interview in rock journalism. A Couple months later, I'm sitting in my room in San Diego, phone rings, it's David Bowie. And he says, I'm on a train coming from New York. I've just left my manager, Tony DeFries. I know only a few people in Los Angeles. You know Glenn Hughes, I know Glenn Hughes. I'll see you in L.A., meet me here, and we'll start doing an
5: interview. This resulted in a series of interviews over 18 months long, amassing to around 20 hours of tape. His Rolling Stone cover will be Bowie's definitive interview of this period, capturing what it was really like to see the thin white duke in the flesh. His flaming orange hair was often slicked back as he smoked cigarette after cigarette, his gaunt frame usually sporting a white button-down and black trousers. And he stayed up for days at a time, dabbling in mysticism and the Kabbalah, and keeping bodily fluids stored in glass bottles. His diet famously consisted purely of cocaine, milk, and peppers. Several of the interviews took place at Glenn Hughes's house. The deep purple basis has vivid memories of living with a thin white Duke.
1: And I was privy to that, the milk scenario, putting the cocaine in the milk if needed to be. David was very. Paranoid, due to the excessive cocaine habit we both had, I don't like to talk about it, but it's already been spoken about but yeah we, we were uh, we had our own demons there, both of us, uh, and we were both very very paranoid young men. It was a huge trip, not a bit of a trip, uh, because I was becoming fascinated by his way of existence. He spoke so much about the world in general. And he was completely uh, in awe of space age. And he would draw things falling out of the sky. I was watching all of this go down. So for me, I was ensconced in what he was talking about. It was nonstop chatter, as you can imagine. It wasn't just two guys getting high. It was two guys that were really loving each other's company.
5: Hints of Bowie's darkness can be found in his interviews with Crow. He even rattled off a few pro-fascist statements, claiming that he would have been a great Hitler. He clarified in later interviews that he wasn't actually a fascist. This was simply theater. Judging from the interview tapes, Bowie's mission was to grab listeners' attention any way he could.
0: Years later, we, we did the interview for Rolling Stone that kind of looked back on that story and um, he, he told me that um, he didn't remember any of the details of all that I had seen and all that we kind of like bonded over and stuff. He, he said a lot of it was the uh, ramblings of a young man addicted to amphetamine. And, uh, and at least I made some good music. He was basically riding around in a yellow Volkswagen that he was driving in Los Angeles with flaming red hair and that kind of jaunty marionette look that you see from photos of the era. And he would drive me home sometimes at like six in the morning or something, give me a ride back to where I was staying. And he would be pulled up right alongside businessmen that were going to work, you know, early morning, 1976, seven. But they would never know that next to them was David Bowie.
5: Bowie respected his past, as he told Crow.
1: I'm very proud of it. I am the king of Glitter Rock. I love them all dearly. I love Ziggy and Aladdin and all of them. Not a band, I never abandoned anything I'm, at all. I'm the king of Glitter
4: Rock
1: over here.
4: It's great. it's nice,
1: man, because I'm the king of something. <laughs> That's nice.
5: Crow also got a front row seat in the studio. Where he witnessed the making of station to station station
0: to station was very dramatic and it seemed different from from what originally he was working on which was like that kind of dancey philly soul thing this was this was something he found musically that i think really stood out which was like very rigid and disciplined and a little european and steely with a hint of emotion. That was kind of the Thin White Duke thing.
5: Bowie was deeply influenced by kraut rock bands like Can and Kraftwerk, and he used the album to introduce this sound to his American fans. But not all of the songs incorporated these influences. The glittery disco gem, Golden Years, could have easily fit on his previous record, Young Americans. guitarist Carlos Alomar still hears these traces of pop very clearly.
6: Now you go into this very, very bubblegum pop, TVC 1-5 and Golden Years, rock and roll. Are you kidding me? That's not rock and roll. That's about as bubblegum pop. That could have been done by uh, Debbie Gibson for all I know.
5: Alomar, who had also worked on Young Americans, received a call from Bowie to come out to Los Angeles to record.
6: All the acts that I have ever worked with, I don't know anybody's telephone number. They get my number. They call me. I say yes. Ring. Hey, Carlos. Hey, David. You know, well, you know, I'm in the studio. What you doing? Uh, I'm on Broadway. What? <laughs> I'm on Broadway. What are you doing on Broadway? I'm, I'm in Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I mean, if you like if you like Ziggy Stardust and tights, you should see Tim Curry.
5: Guitarist Earl Slick. Who played on Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour a year prior was already living in LA, then the epicenter of the rock universe. Oh
7: my God. LA in the mid 70s was, I mean, it was the hotbed for every rock and roll band in the world. I mean, it was definitely one up on New York. Every club, there was like the Rainbow Bar and Grill, the Roxy, a number of other places where everybody and every band from from completely unknown guys to to Led Zeppelin would all hang out in the same places. It was a, it was seven days a week.
5: Bassist George Murray and drummer Dennis Davis also got on board. With Alomar, they created a rhythm section Billy had used for the rest of the decade, up until nineteen eighties Scary Monsters.
6: Station to station was the introduction of the damn trio. The damn trio is Dennis Davis, Carlos Alomar, and George Murray. What we have to understand is that there is a time when you lock something down and you go, oh, my God, this is the bomb. I can get anything I want out of this.
5: The only thing they lacked was a piano player. As luck would have it, Slick's old friend, Roy Bitten, had recently joined Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, and they were in town.
8: We checked into the Sunset Marquee to do some L.A. shows. And I stepped out of my balcony and I looked across the courtyard where the pool was. And I see Slick standing on a balcony at his room. (laughs) So I called to him and, uh, you know, we yelled at each other. We went downstairs and he said to me, you know, I, I don't believe it. He said, I was just talking to David about you, David knew that Bruce was coming into town and he wanted a piano player to come in and play on the sessions. He said, I got to call him and tell him that you're you're here. It was just a very fortuitous moment for me in in the fact that, you know, there I was in L.A. and he was really just ready to do some piano work. And it was a, a great moment, you know, when things come together like that.
5: Here's guitarist Earl
8: Slick. The reason that the light bulb went off when I saw Roy
7: was there's a difference between a keyboard player to me and a pianist. And Roy's a pianist. And having worked with Roy before, I thought, wow, he can do this. This is going to be perfect. And, and, you know, that was the whole idea when I saw him. It just I knew he I knew he was right.
5: In the fall of 1975, the band headed to Cherokee Studios in LA to start recording. Here's pianist Roy Bitton.
8: Uh, just a classic recording studio. I remember walking down the hall there and and uh, I, I passed an open door and I looked in and there was uh, a, a couple in a hot tub. <laughs> they actually had a
5: hot tub in, in one of the rooms. Here's guitarist Earl Slick.
7: Oh yeah, oh, that was so normal in those places in the '70s. Like Record Plant was famous for that, as well. That all those studios, yeah. And the funny thing was is we never we never bothered with any of that shit. We were too busy recording. We didn't use any of that stuff. Listen to the record, and it was done relatively quick. So you know, with all of the rumors or and truths about the amount of cocaine we were using, you know, when you're 25 years old.
4: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret?
5: So, did Bowie's excessive cocaine use have an effect on station to station?
7: Hell yeah. That record never would have been that record without cocaine, period. I mean, don't try this at home, kids, but, you know, uh, it did do something to us, that's for sure. The band on station was a trip. Um, We'll start with Harry Maslin, our producer, who was the only one who wasn't high. Um,
5: Poor Harry. Maslin known for producing Barry Manilow and Air Supply, had recently worked with Bowie and John Lennon on fame. You know, I,
9: I wasn't a, a cocaine fanatic. I, I have to admit I did a little bit of cocaine, but mostly to stay up and be able to, to keep up with David through the night, uh, because he liked to work long hours. and And I didn't mind the long hours, but it's, you know, a little bit of cocaine or coffee or something's gonna help you stay up. But I didn't like the drug david liked the drug and it was difficult because i had to play friend uh you know brother psychologist and and producer all on the same day
5: station to station kicks off with a title track a fantastically bizarre 10 minute mashup of several songs bowie even proclaims it's not the side effects the cocaine i'm thinking that it must be love
9: the uh, actual opening starts with a uh, a train sound effect and uh, wasn't sure whether I should use that sound effect or not because you know station to station is a very deep meaning it's not necessarily a a railroad train Uh, it's stations of the tree of life and a few other things but I thought well why not let's try the train uh, since of the obvious uh, title and then of course Right after that, Slick comes in with a feedback guitar, which, you know, you can either look at as a a train whistle or something else. Uh, There's, you know, layers of what we were trying to do at the time. It just kind of worked.
7: Here's guitarist Earl Slick. That, to the best of my memory, that was three different pieces that he had. And and we kind of puzzled them together to turn it into what it is there's the, you know, the body, the main body of the song. Then there's, uh, it was weird. It was, I don't know how we did it. He had three separate ideas and somehow they worked together. Um, and then the adding stuff like the train at the beginning, all that feedback that we did was on the spur of the moment. I, I think we'd had Harry up for like a day and a half and we just decided we were going to feedback back for a while. we Both of us were standing in front of a wall of Marshalls A Cherokee, in the middle of the night, feeding back. That's how spontaneous that whole thing was.
5: This spontaneous approach was unfamiliar to Bitten, who had just finished making Born to Run, which was meticulously pieced together over months in the studio.
8: It really was a matter of just making my way through the roadmap of the songs and trying to create a part. I realized that I I think I only did a couple of takes on each song because I can hear myself developing a part as the song rolls along, whether it was uh, station to station with its really long when we methodically recorded Born to Run. My piano parts on that record were well-developed in the final takes, whereas this one was extremely extemporaneous. Whatever David was hearing, he seemed to want this sort of element of freeform playing. You know, it was uh, quite a different experience.
5: Here's producer Harry Maslin,
9: <laughs> yeah roy was great and then roy he, he was kind of a, a fish out of water for a minute because i don't think he did know why he was there <laughs> and uh, we, we just kind of threw him into it and uh you know bent his arm to to play on the project and he just did a great job of course and he's a great guy and uh, that worked out perfectly we had a lot of good luck
5: the one line of direction Bowie did give to Bitten was to channel Professor Longhair, the New Orleans legend who developed his signature sound by learning to play a piano with missing keys. Coincidentally, Bitten had just seen the pianist at a show in Texas.
8: He said, yeah, well, I'd, I'd like you to try and do like a little Professor Longhair thing on on this song. And the song was TVC 15 So, when that song starts and you hear the piano in there, that's what it was. I was trying to, uh, to cop Professor Longhair for, for David.
5: Station to Station concludes with a cover of Wild is the Wind. The song was first recorded by Johnny Mathis in 1957, but it was Nina Simone's version from the 60s that inspired Bowie to take a stab at it. Like Simone's, Bowie's take is seductive yet melancholic, with each line delivered slowly, like a desperate plea. It's widely seen as one of the greatest vocal performances of his career.
9: Oh, it's one of the best he's ever done, hands down. Yeah, that's another one where it was probably not many takes uh, and kind of scary good, but he did an astounding job. And, you know, to this day, people kind of rave about that vocal.
1: Will your kiss, my life You know your life itself.
5: Cameron Crowe says it's his favorite track on the record.
0: I would go wild as it went. This, is, this sounds really weird to say, but like having been there when he recorded TVC 15 I still can't believe I watched that come together and taped it. So when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, this, this may be my favorite on the album because it's kind of like I have a personal connection to being so lucky as to have been there when he did it. But Wild as the Wind feels deeply resonant in the coolest way. Wild the wind. Wind. Wind.
5: Station to Station was released on January 23rd, 1976 and peaked at number three on the album charts a little more than a month later. Maslin was initially nervous about the label's impression.
9: I was worried about it when we finished it because we had the RCA guys, all the top brass who were all kind of lawyer-type people at the time. They all came down and they sat on the couch Cherokee and I did a rough mix for them just so they heard what they were paying for and what the product was going to be. I was kind of worried about what they were going to say. And when we finished, the president, I think it was Galantzzi at the time, he stood up and he looked like pale as a ghost. So I was was like really worried. And he just praised us and and said he thought it was a great album and that uh, he thanked us for for doing it. And I was quite relieved.
5: Bowie often looked back on his Los Angeles period as the darkest chapter of his life. Even confessing in later years, he was so drugged out that he barely remembered making the record. As he said, I can't even remember the studio. I know it was in L.A. because I read it was. But some in Bowie's circle at the time, like Alomar and Crow, argue it was so painful he chose not to remember it.
6: Let's remember, there might be a little calculation around that. He doesn't remember anything because he doesn't want you to know his inner thoughts. You interpret it. I know from talking to him
0: later about that story that he so valued the music and the musical choices that he made, but I think the emotional choices that he made scared him and later maybe even embarrassed him. I think he did remember what happened. I just think he didn't want to remember. And he certainly wasn't going to reminisce and you know, want to have a beer and think about the old days. I don't think he was that kind of guy.
5: Everyone else who worked on the record ranks it as a career highlight, including Roy Bitten, who has also worked with the likes of Stevie Nicks, Peter Gabriel, and Lucinda Williams.
8: Oh my God. Well, David being David, and certainly uh, I have to rank it, right up there with with bruce you know i I was i was fortunate enough to to play on uh um, making movies with dire straits and certainly stevie's two solo records and a lot of other great artists but david's right up there in the top i gotta put him right next to bruce
5: maslin attributes the overwhelming love of the record to the liberating way it was created well,
9: yeah, you know, I've recorded everything from tap dancers to, you know, animals. <laughs> so, you you name and I've recorded it. And going back to the fact that, you know, this was an album where we could express ourselves and had the time, you know, we didn't have to go through first verse, second verse, uh, bridge, chorus, whatever. We didn't have to follow traditions and it let us really play around with our you know, inner feelings about certain things about music.
5: Slick remained in Bowie's orbit for decades. He played on his penultimate record The Next Day and on Bowie's final tour before he died in 2016. He still performed Station to Station in its entirety on occasion, referring to it fondly as his baby. Everything
7: fell into place. It was just a perfect storm of me being able to really contribute something that I felt really, really good about. Uh, because all of the records down the line sometimes, you know, Station is so different from Low, which is so different from Young Americans. They're all different. And that record was just the perfect record for me to do what I did. That's why.
5: Station to Station became one of Bowie's most successful albums to date and proved his audience was willing to follow him to bold and surprising places. It gave him the confidence to further experiment with the avant-garde on his legendary Berlin trilogy, Low, Heroes, and Lodger, while recovering from his drug addiction. Here's writer and director Cameron Crowe.
0: I think the Berlin trilogy is all about saving his life, or at least starting the next chapter, which is, I want to live, and I want to figure out how to live while still being true to this music that that I'm insanely curious and loving of.
5: Station to Station landed at number 52 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list. To hear more, Check out the Rediscovered David Bowie playlist on Amazon Music.
3: I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Steamer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Angie Martosio. Mixing by Marquise Neal. Our senior producer is Michelle Lanz. Additional production help by Mary Dew. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Walkney, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Special thanks to Cameron Crow, Brian Hyatt, and Greg Mariotti. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums every Tuesday, and hear it first on Amazon Music.